It's episode 27 of the Presentable Podcast, and I'm your host, Jeff Bean. Today on the program, my friend and fellow Londoner, Matt Webb, joins the program. He was one of the founders of the connected hardware design firm, Berg, and now runs the Internet of Things Accelerator for RGA. This episode is all about hardware design. We talk about why it's so difficult to iterate and why people's expectations of their devices is changing so quickly. So let's get right to it. Uh, so what do you want to talk about? You want to talk about uh, politics or uh, <laughs> sports? Oh, sports, cricket. Hey, you, uh, it must be cricket season. Um, the county games I'm not following, but there are some internationals on which are really I so. have been spending some time in South London and I get off at the Oval to yep. stop all the time. And I have not been inside the Oval. It's named that right for the big giant uh, stadium yes. that they play cricket in. Yes. And I keep every time I keep thinking like, oh, I got to go to a match yeah. with Matt so I can learn because I don't know the first thing about cricket. I was uh, I grew up on baseball. Yeah. We we are totally going to go. We're totally. I like every year. I'm like, this is the year I'm just going to like drag all my friends to the Oval. You're top of my oh, list. Oh, top of the list. So it's like the that's the the the, the two stadiums in London. That's the posh one, right? Oh. Okay. So um, you know, Oval is raucous and you know crazy everyone's building beer snakes it's um <laughs> it's 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 a bit it's a bit weird every time they do a mexican wave everyone chucks their food in the air <laughs> uh lords the equivalent is they um uh when they pop their champagne they try and get the cork over the boundary rope. i didn't know there was more there there was a sort of a blue collar equivalent cricket in my mind just seems like, like i categorize it up there with like wimbledon like everybody is dressed really nicely in white and politely clapping and, and nodding their approval. But, but it gets a little bit more like football, does it? Friday nights at the Oval are like just an awesome mess. <laughs> like, like it just, uh, yeah, people, so what, what happens is you, you drink out of plastic cups. And then as people get the plastic cups, they stack them on top of each other to get higher. Yeah, yeah. And then people start passing their stacks around and they start chanting. Uh, feed the snake. <laughs> feed the snake, and uh, the, the the stack just gets taller and taller and taller, like, and it's like you know, ten foot in the air. Wow! And then it will collapse over, and people pass it around, you know, and these things look like st- snakes in the stands standing up, and then it collapses over some poor person who just gets oh. coated in like residual bits of beer. Oh. Yeah, uh, uh, there is are all these a, kind of signs. Because up. there's there's not that much going on in the on the field. <laughs> Is that, is that like I'm trying to make a little more entertaining? That's an outrageous statement, but, prob- <laughs> but no, probably look, true. Right, to, fair point. I like, grew up a baseball fan. In my household, we never watched uh, football or basketball, American football or basketball. And that's the same criticism, criticism about baseball, is that, you know, there are very little going on at any given time. But I came yeah. to love the beauty of the sport and the, the strategy behind it, and the deep you know, mathematics, mathematics and statistics that are that underlie everything and actually make the game rich and, and interesting. Yeah. Um, so I think I can appreciate that. But at the same time, like when I first brought my kids to a baseball game, they're like, what do we, what do, we do, Dad? <laughs> so, yeah. you know, not a lot going on. Yeah, you're like, we admire the philosophy of the ebb and flow. Right. Yeah. It doesn't a, play with a five-year-old. Yeah, not so well. I think, you know, cricket is one of these very rare sports where when a team is absolutely beaten down, it's possible for the other team to come back. Uh, sorry, for the, yeah. the team that's beaten down to come back. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, 
And it's um, it's one of the reasons that I use cricket so much just as a kind of a, you know, it's my metaphor mind for thinking about how I do work as well. Yeah. Um, because it's it's one of these few things where you go, you know, like cricket is full of good luck and bad luck, but it also rewards hard work and continuously moving in the same direction. And things change just through time. Mm-hmm. You know, two hours is a tactic in the same way that like a great, you know, knocking a six or like, you know, taking wickets can be a tactic. So time is a factor and most sports aren't like that. The opposite is true, right? With the, the yeah. clock continuously counting down and the, the desperate attempt to try to do something in the last remaining seconds. Right. So that sometimes becomes a factor as well. Yeah, it's quite interesting. There's a lovely book actually called The Art of Captaincy um, by one of the old England captains, a guy named Mike Brearley back in the 80s. He was a successful captain, like really good at team management went on to become president of the British Psychological Association, uh-huh. Psychological BPA. So he's, um, he, he retrained into psychoanalytics um, and oh, cool. like that be- became his kind of second career. And this book is about, uh, it's about team management um, and about how to work with people, but drawing on his lessons from team sport. Oh. And it's an incredible book. You don't need to know anything about cricket to read it. It's just, uh, yeah, in terms of like, you know, working with people lessons. I'll put the link to that in the show notes. It looks good. Cool. One of my favorites. Cool. Uh, so what's keeping you busy these days? You uh, went through the incubator project at RGA. Um, is that, uh, have you done a new cohort? Uh, so working towards the next cohort at the moment. Tell me a little bit about this. The idea was taking uh, a group of relatively early or even pre-company formation sort of companies and helping them through in, in kind of like a Y Combinator style uh, accelerator sort of thing, but with kind of a different slant on it. And they were all hardware based. Is that correct? Uh, mostly hardware based, all IoT. So, um, and, and there are some differences to the, to the model as well. So yes, an accelerator. So the, the way it works was, you know, a cohort of startups and working with them for three months to help them. Um, go through like an inflection point with their companies, you know, answer like, you know, a particular challenge, help them build the sales book, grow the business, you know, all, all those kind of good things. Um, right. And a three month program based around that. So, you know, like some, uh, you know, it's coaching, meeting lots of people, you know, getting just expert advice, but also doing kind of quite hands on creative work around their brand or value prop. And then, you know, helping them tell the story. So, you know, Good thing, you know, not just a kind of a pitch deck, but like, can you tell a coherent story about the business to product usually kind of I'm shakes better. out loose spots. That's so important. Yeah. yeah, yeah it's yeah, incredible. Yeah, sure. like, always surprises me how much, uh, how much you can kind of see soft spots um, just through the discipline of trying to say it out loud, you know. Um, but yeah, a couple of differences, I guess, in this, this program. One is, is the companies were later stage than most accelerators. So I think most accelerators, the companies will be quite early. Um, you know, they might not have a product yet. Uh, they, might, they might still be kind of working on the tech. For this program, the difference was that everybody was already commercially ready. So they had field trials. They had some traction. Um, they, knew, they knew they had some kind of offer to, to take to customers. So we could help kind of grow around that. And I think, you know, the, the thing for me is that people often talk to customers a bit too late. You know, they kind of think about, well, we'll first we'll kind of make our product and then we'll start talking to people about it. And really, the two things can happen at the same time. So we kind of went with people who are a bit later stage. Um, The second uh, 
difference with this cohort is that it was um, it was a particular kind of IoT. So um, not necessarily around hardware, though all of them were hardware enabled in some kind of way. We sort of alighted on an area that I sort of loosely call enterprise IoT. So okay. it's um, still productized, you know, still like the kind of, you know, the repeatable product that we sort of know from consumer IoT, uh, but focused on business, but not kind of industrial, not kind of, you know, big sensor arrays and all, the, all those kind of things, um, right. you know, products that kind of work in the workplace. So, yeah, uh, in, interesting program. And, and the, the, the thing we're trying to do now is just um, get together a collection of kind of bigger companies who want to support another program, which would probably be targeted at sort of late 2017, early 2018. Hmm. Yeah. Um, oh, I got a bunch of questions about that. And primarily, I want to talk about uh, the design, the product development process for hardware and how it's different from software, because I have been recently more involved with hardware companies. And frankly, I, I know very little about that compared to my experience in kind of digital interface design and product development, stuff like that. But um, let, me, let, me, like, let me take that apart when you say enterprise internet of things. When I think of IoT, uh, the first thing that always pops into my mind is kind of stuff around the house, right? Where you have a echo that you talk to that turns on the lights. That seems to be the like hello world of all of this. <clears throat> How are you thinking about that a little bit differently with the work that you're doing with these companies? I think so like, um, like that point, you know, my starting point with IoT was, you know, smart home. You know, it's it is product. It's you know consumer products that kind of connect to the uh, connect to the internet and do something because from the internet they can connect to any, everything, and that has impacts for design and you know how you sell it and how the how the user understands it. Uh, and yeah. you know there are particular challenges, and you know Kickstarter is big there and that, that kind of thing. Um, right. And then at a certain point, people were like, you know, what we've been doing is kind of connecting to the internet thing for a while now, but it's been called in the past M to M or you know, well, that's M to M. machine to machines. So that's a kind of a connectivity uh -huh. layer. And it's usually kind of in the, you know, industrial space. So you'll put sensors in factories uh, or you'll put, you know, uh, sensors around the city to kind of measure pollution or you'll put, you know, GPS in um, GPS and cellular and some kind of, you know, construction site equipment to make sure it doesn't go walkabout, those kind of things. And there's a yeah. there's a kind of an area there. So people started and this is a few years back started talking about um, industrial IoT. And they're basically like, it was a bit of a loose term. It was anything that isn't in the home was sort of called industrial. And I just didn't, it, it never quite resonated with me because it didn't feel tractable to the startup approach of understanding the user and the consumer and the products and trying to find that kind of fit and, you know, iterating it. It, it felt to me just like a, you know, traditional software business with some kind of sensors attached. And there wasn't anything reproducible there. You couldn't iterate and learn as you went. And I, right. just by talking to people, you know, one of the privileges of doing this, um, doing the program recently was I got to talk to like dozens of companies and look at a couple of hundred pretty closely. The thing I started observing was there was a, there was a type of IoT, type of internet of things where it was still a product, still a reproducible thing, but it operated in the business landscape and the value it offered was much clearer. I'll give, I'll, I'll give you an example in a second, but the, um, okay. I think the, the analogy I kind of draw is, you know, there's that generation of kind of web and mobile startups that learn from consumer, but work in business like Slack 
and Dropbox. Yeah. You know, they're, yeah. they're very clearly of our kind of consumer world as opposed to, you know, the, the old world of the, you know, the Microsoft offices, you know, that, that kind of uh, old world thing. Um, so the kind of companies I started noticing was, um, well, I'll tell you the one I noticed first. It was a company called Winnow, and they do a product which helps deal with food waste in commercial kitchens. They were, they, they ended up being part of the part of the program here at RGA. Uh, they're already quite a long way down the track, so you know, um, large company, lots of offices all over the world. Um, and the way they work is they have a sensor that sits underneath the main waste bin in a commercial kitchen. So I mean, like a kitchen in a in a hotel or a restaurant or in a or cruise ship, that kind of thing. And above the bin, they install a tablet. So this all comes as one product. So when somebody puts you know, some food in that bin, they're prompted to say where that food came from and what it was. So it's kind of set up to make it really easy, very quick to do that. So they kind of say, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's back from the restaurant and it's such and such meal. Right. Once a week, the exec chef gets the team together, as they do already, uh, to review kitchen performance. And they go, oh, you know what? There's a lot of food coming back from the restaurant. That means we're over-portioning. Oh, you know what? There's a lot of food which is being wasted during prep. That means we need to do some more training. So just this intervention, it turns out, leads to a food waste, food waste reduction of about half. It's an extraordinary difference. You know, food waste is a trillion dollar a year problem. Um, you know, uh, commercial kitchens are a small but, you know, important part of that. And this is really helping and it hits the bottom line for these kitchens. They, you know, they kind of make more money. Right, right. And the product itself is essentially a scale with a connected tablet. Yeah, uh, and nicely integrated. Um, it's, but Winnow itself charges on a, um, as a monthly fee. So they're a data, they're a data yeah, company. Yeah. So they're, right. they're what, you know, the, the business model here is um, hardware enabled, software as a service, hardware enabled SaaS. And it's, so it's, uh -huh. so it's a kind of a, um, one of the challenges with IoT is it has these kind of ongoing costs. So you need to find ways of making recurring revenue. Uh, and in the business context, that's quite easy because businesses know how to pay on a recurring basis. So they've identified that. Um, they've also got themselves into a situation where they don't need to mass produce the hardware. So they just make the, they just make the hardware kind of as they need to. Uh, and that gets out of another hole, which is how the companies make 10,000 things all at once and then sell it. So they're kind of, they're much more on demand. And it has in, interesting implications for kind of how they, how they design it. Um, but I sort of, sort of, sort of seeing this uh, new area emerging, uh, enterprise IoT. And it was answering a lot of the challenges I see in both the consumer IoT and the industrial IoT spaces. And so it became the focus of the program, really. Um, I think the majority of our companies are, are in that space. Interesting. So let me like mm. pick on the one, one of the things that you were talking about there. Like, let's drill into that because this is the thing that I would conceivably struggle with the most, I would imagine, uh, if I turned my attention to doing some hardware design project, which is the, the fundamental premise of the lean startup methodology, which is to learn as quickly as possible by shipping minimum viable product and measuring the feedback and performance and iterating as quickly and tightly as you possibly can. Uh, I've put that into practice over the last 10 years in digital design and it works phenomenally, right? Ship, 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 keep shipping, keep learning, um, make everything really lightweight, do the, not just the minimum viable product, but the minimum amount of work before you can learn more. And the more iterations you get in, 
in the shortest amount of time just means the more learning you're able to do with the amount of capital you have, frankly, in the startup world. That seems incredibly difficult from a hardware point of view for the reason that you said, which is that the piece of hardware itself is expensive and is not something that can go back and forth to the uh, consumer or enterprise for that matter. So like, how do you get around that? It seems incredibly difficult. Yeah, I mean, it's at, at this point, it's almost easier to identify the challenges as it is to you know, find ways around that. So, I mean, let's kind of look at some kind of consumer you know, connected product. Like what, what kind of problems do we have? Uh, we've got the fact that, you know, people have expectations. Now that consumers have expectations of a certain kind of price point for products, uh, which implies a certain kind of aesthetics. So that's expensive tooling when you're doing manufacture. Uh, but also to keep the price down, you've got to do some kind of, you know, bulk manufacture. You go to, you know, you go to China um, if you're manufacturing 5,000 units or up. And, you know, once you start, once you start, you know, playing in that kind of world, you have to start thinking about lead times. And let's say, you know, ambitiously, you have a kind of an order to, you know, the product arriving in a warehouse uh, domestically where you can sell it of, let's say, you know, three months. And then let's say you have it in people's homes and you kind of measure retention uh, for another three months. So that's a six month cycle, not including design time. So what you get to learn twice a year. How many times do you ship a web? We don't even talk about shipping websites anymore, right? It's a continuous, continuous process. Integration. Yeah, twi yeah, twice yeah. a twice a week, twice a day. You know, yeah, it's an incredible, yeah. it's an incredible cadence difference. And then you've got, you know, you've got, uh, you've got the things that a a redesign to, you know, shift your business model or change the feature set. Um, is incredibly hard to do because if you have a, um, if you're kind of changing the, the brand of the thing, you know, the, 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 the semiotics of the, of the, of the product, you know, you want to try and reach a slightly different audience. Uh, you know, changing the shape of the plastic is a matter of changing a great big lump of steel somewhere that is used to injection molding. And that's both slow and expensive. You know, there's no, yeah. there's no, you know, command Z for <laughs> shaving away a little nubbin of steel on something. So really, really, really tough. Uh, it creates some weird bits of friction for the business as well. In consumer IoT, you know, you've got servers which are kind of churning away. I'm assuming something that's kind of Wi-Fi connected um, rather than Bluetooth. But, you, you know, let's say Wi-Fi connected, that means it's connecting to a server somewhere. And, you know, then there's kind of cost implications because you've got, as a business, ongoing costs. So that that's another factor to take into account in what you're designing. So the basic, like that's the basic business model contradiction, which right. is I'm going to sell you a thing for 99 pounds and that's the end of our financial relationship. But that thing is going to talk to a server that I have to run for the life of the product, which could be a decade. And so I have these ongoing costs that essentially like slowly over time, just keep eating into my margin. Yeah, which uh, makes it very hard to make design decisions because then you've got a you've got a misalignment of interests where the thing that you, you kind of want as a business is for people to stop using the product because it costs you less. Right. But you need people to use it because the only kind of way you get you know, virality in that kind of world is uh, if people use it loads and talk to their friends about it. Now, I'm, I'm saying all of these things, but you know, they're now beginning to be better understood. Like if you look at the new generation of consumer hardware startups, they're beginning to understand clever ways of 
reducing the supply chain and of minimizing recurring costs that don't have recurring revenue attached. So now you're just left with the pure design issues, which is that, you know, iteration is very hard and you're also having design with a material which is basically invisible. So I mentioned kind of, you know, Wi-Fi versus Bluetooth. In the, in the good old world of product design, we're, we're used to the fact that you can see on the surface of the thing, you know, there, there are literal, the visual affordances are, are, are literal, right? There's a button there, there's a dial there, you know, it wants you to touch it. Um, but now we're left with this pure design issue that the control surface is anywhere on the internet. So when you walk up to a device, how do you even know how to interact with it? And that, that presents right. a, a whole, you know, a whole new design challenge. Yeah, I've, um, I've, in fact, I think talked about it on this podcast before, like the kitchen appliances that I uh, have, um, have, to, to be honest, like really poorly designed interface on them, like buttons with icons that, that make no sense and modes that you have to put things, all, all sorts of like just the, very, the classic, like traditional bad hardware and how much I really would prefer that it just had a single light, two lights on it, one that said the power is on and one that said you're connected to your phone. And then just make a simple interface on the phone and then it works. But, but you're talking really about feature discovery in devices like that, right? Like, how do you know what it does and how do you even know how to connect and things like that? Yeah. And I think it's, it's interesting because like the most powerful, you know, when you kind of see a connected device, you expect it to have autonomy, let's say, you know, because it's kind of doing stuff on its own. Um, but then discovering the control surface for that is only really possible when it's connected over Bluetooth because then it shows up on your phone, right? Um, but then if it's Bluetooth that hasn't got autonomy because it doesn't have its own part of the internet. So we're, we're kind of back in the old world of having to really sort of work around the constraints of like, you know, the connectivity method, something that kind of bubbles up and it's something that has to be taken into account. I mean, interesting. Yeah. You know, and yeah. I mean, just to chuck in yet more challenges, there's the fact that, you know, Bluetooth is a, you know, joins a device to a particular phone, which is a particular person, but, you know, hardware is intrinsically group use. You use it, but also anybody who walks into the house can kind of pick it up and, you know, use it or be not allowed to use it as well. So we have this, you know, yet another kind of factor is that we're in a world of personal computing and the gears there are meshing quite badly with a world of group use, which is sort of intrinsic to physical product. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's like um, you go stay in an Airbnb and, uh, and they send you a note that says, okay, when you get there, here's how you turn on the lights. First, go download <laughs> this app. Second, we have a closet in the back with a server and by that server, it's a little box. You push the button on the box. Well, yeah. It's ridiculous, right? Like just to turn on the lights. This week's episode is brought to you by Pingdom. I am so glad to have Pingdom as a sponsor because I've been a user for years. Back when we were building Typekit, we made a promise to our users that the fonts we served for their website would load quickly and not delay their pages. We used Pingdom to monitor all of our services and relied on their notifications when any of our systems were slow or reporting outages. This gave us an instant heads up, allowing us to solve problems before our customers even noticed. And I'll share with you a little secret. We used Pingdom to monitor our competitors as well to see how well they were doing and how we compared. You can start monitoring your websites and servers today at pingdom.com presentable. You'll get a 14-day free trial, and when you enter offer code presentable at checkout, you'll get 20% off your first invoice. Pingdom is focused on making the web faster and more reliable for everyone who has a website. They do this by offering powerful and easy to use tools and services. For example, 
If you're a Pingdom user, monitoring the availability and performance of your server, database, or website, it'll be a breeze. Pingdom takes care of this by using more than 70 global test servers that emulate visits to your site, checking its availability as often as every minute. These days, websites are becoming more and more sophisticated and very often include loads of dependencies. These are things like contact forms, e-commerce checkouts, logins, search functionality, and more. So Pingdom makes it possible to monitor the availability of all of these key interactions that people will have with your site. Look, stuff breaks on the internet all the time. Every month, Pingdom detects around 13 million outages. That's more than 400,000 outages every single day. So regardless of whether you have a small website or you're managing a complete infrastructure, it's super important to monitor the availability and performance. All Pingdom needs is a URL you wish to monitor and they take care of the rest. When Pingdom detects an outage, you'll be immediately alerted so you can fix the error before the downtime affects you and your users. You don't want to be caught out when somebody wants to access your site, so you need Pingdom. Check it out today and you'll be the first to know when your site is down. Go to pingdom.com presentable for a 14-day free trial and use the code presentable to get 20% off at checkout. Thanks to Pingdom for sponsoring Presentable and supporting Relay FM. I, you know, I thought something really interesting, just in the last week I saw a thing in the news about Amazon kind of quietly rolling out this in-home installation service for IoT devices. Like for $99, a person will come over to your house and configure everything if you make the purchase through Amazon. And I'm like, and it, and it made me realize like, oh my gosh, not only is discoverability of features difficult, but just getting everything working and set up and properly and making sure like DHCP is configured for, with holes in the, mm. uh, in the firewall. And uh, like, it's still like, we're still a long way away from opening the box and having a delightful experience. So I'm, I'm less afraid of the offloading configuration bit. And I'll, I'll tell you why. It's that when I was, uh, when I was growing up, my, my uncle Dave um, was an AV nerd. You know, everyone's a nerd about something, right? He was a nerd about his high five oh, yeah. separates and his speakers. And he, yeah. he, he knew his, you know, phono cables and all that, you know, what the red means and what the white means. And I, I have to admit, I'm a bit of a trial and error person with these things. Uh, but it's really good when you know someone like that, because, you know, they can, they can come around or you can phone them up and somebody can kind of configure it for you. And it's, it's one of those things that, you know, everyone's got someone in their circle who's a bit like that. Sure. And yep. I think one, one of the shames at the moment is that we don't have the equivalent of AV cables for our home internet things. So are you saying there's no physical representation or that there's no standard, like red, white, and yellow uh, were for the, the, the connectors in those boxes? So I think what the, yeah, it's, it's that kind of equivalent. It's a sort of, you can see what plugs into anything else just by saying, you know, what shape the jack is. Uh, the color coordination tells you kind of how to kind of plug things together. There's a bit of expert knowledge needed about kind of, you know, the, the, the power of the speakers or the impedance matching, those kind of things. Um, and it's complicated enough that you want someone to kind of help you set it up in the, in the AV world, but um, accessible enough that there's always someone in your circle who can kind of help out. Um, and the nice thing is that the cables are kind of external from the devices in such a way that somebody can set up your kit without needing your passwords and things like that. Uh, it's almost oh. impossible for me to invite someone around to help set me up my kit, my smart home, in such a way that it will carry on working even once they're gone. That's true. Now, isn't this where some of the, th you know, like Apple's HomeKit is intended to be that sort of standardized discoverability installation kind of thing? 
Yeah, it's 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 good, isn't it? I think these kind of things are emerging. I'm not a believer in the kind of one platform to rule them all no. sort of thing. So no. that's the um, I think there are you know we're still a long way from finding out what works. I mean, what how long of how long have audio jacks been around? Like a hundred years, right? It takes a while to kind of stabilize on on what the right abstraction points are for these different things. Um, so we're going to live in a yeah. world where there are lots of different standards for a bit. So I'd like something that understands the sort of, that it's heterogeneous, that, it, that all, all this kind of stuff has to has to work together. Um, yeah, it's a it's a tricky one. All right, it seems like the Amazon platform, Google with uh, Google Home and HomeKit have kind of emerged as three probably competing and eventually compatible methods for doing all of this stuff. Though the um, I found it interesting that Eero is kind of getting into that space. You know the um, they're big uh, podcast advertisers, so people are probably familiar with mm. them. But the the they're the Wi-Fi mesh like little boxes that you plug in all over your house, and then your Wi-Fi just works. And um, and they came out with a kind of a new version of their hub at the right at the networking layer that has some. I'll have to look it up and put a link to the show notes, but um, some kind of standard way for all devices to speak to one another which seems to be make a lot of sense that you would sign up for your broadband you get a little box that is your router modem and home networking interpreter mm. of some sorts but um yeah it seems like there's a lot of ground to cover yet yeah i think so and i think when i'm talking to iot companies my um my premise at the moment is don't get you know we're, don't get too fixated on the technology layer uh, mm. the, the bit to kind of focus on is where it kind of stretches out of the ecosystem and into people's actual lives and go, is there, being, is there value being created here? Um, do people you know, either love it or find it useful? Does it save you money? Does it help you make money? Uh, do you enjoy having it in your home? And then the technology almost can be worked out afterwards. Now, that's not completely true because by you know, it's easy to fall into one of these kind of business pitfalls or to get into a world where the technology is so hard to develop, that it's hard to develop further. But, mm. you know, as a kind of a starting point, I would say, you know, the, the point to focus on is, yeah, that, that moment of interaction. Is there kind of value there? Yeah. I mean, you're talking about, uh, again, like a user-centered discovery process that, that takes into account things like ethnography, right? going out in the world, observing how people are living and looking for solutions to problems that they, that they have while you're, having, while you're doing those observations, which I think, I think that translates across all kinds of design. You know, that's the, the method that we've been using for a long time. But very few people, very few businesses, I think, do that in a sense of conceiving of a new pro product, right? That still feels like the sort of genius inspiration, right? Like, yeah. uh, oh, I think it would be great to be able to do this without any validation of that. And then heading towards technical feasibility yeah and i think this is where we're back to our point about the sort of the impedance mismatch of software and hardware in the software world it's quite possible to kind of start by just kind of scratching an itch and you know seeing what that seeing what that results in maybe show some people mm -hmm. and design becomes this kind of you know accretive process trying things out exploring you know some things might be a dead end something might be promising but it's always in people's hands almost kind of intrinsically and it's the lovely thing that, you know, the startup world has kind of adopted into, you know, into the uh, makeup is that the voice of the customer or the user is at top table. 
And it, it didn't used to be like that, right? You know, you used to right. design a product and sell a product. And then the people using it were kind of like, you had to actually you know, go, sneak out of the company, go and find some people using it, go and watch them using it and kind of go and report back. Uh, and that would yeah. change your design process. There was a kind of a you know, waterfall there that kind of, you know, corporate sales. The great thing about startups is that the voice of the user is is part of the conversation about, you know, kind of what to do next and how to evolve it. And the question is, you know, can you do that with hardware too? Um, yeah. If you're doing manufacturing in bulk in China, that is harder um, because of this kind of, you know, mass manufacture and the, uh, the amount of time and the lack of iterations involved, which just says to me, it's even more important to to make prototypes, often non-functional prototypes, and take them out and put them in people's homes. Non-functional prototypes? What do you mean? Uh, so I remember designing with, uh, crikey, this is before Berg was Berg, right? Shorts and Web. So with with Jack, uh, we were in a you know in a in a meeting room somewhere in Helsinki doing some design work for a text message application so you know it was a company based around kind of communicating with its customers by text messages and we were trying to prototype what a text message interaction would look like and of course we didn't have we didn't have any of the kit right and we were somewhere else so our text messages you know gives you an idea about how old this was you know we couldn't be going you know texting each other and the mode we found to like try this out most effectively was we uh laser cut wooden outlines of phones before phones were just rectangles you know they had kind of interesting shapes right so you could recognize a phone by its kind of cutout and just getting those quarter-sized post-it notes and sticking them on the front where the screen would be and writing text messages on it and we would <laughs> we would write a text message on a tiny post-it note and then hand it through the door through a crack in the door so you couldn't see the other person's face to receive it and then you would kind of see what you wanted to text back and it was incredible oh, what you learned from that it was so good uh, because you just you just receive this thing, and you you sort of in that moment of uh, interaction you introspect and you see how it makes you feel, and that was the the quickest dirtiest way of getting to uh, what is this going to feel like to me? How should it be designed? Wow. But, Wow, wow, wow. Uh, yeah. And I thought, you know, I thought we were all innovative with paper prototyping for websites <laughs> where you, you know, but you're doing it with post-it notes on a piece of wood that looks like a phone. Yeah. I think that's amazing. It was really good. <laughs> um, I think the thing we learned most was that it's almost impossible not to say thanks to a helpful text message. And so the indication yeah. there was that, you know, the system is going to need to figure out how to deal with people terminating conversations in, right. in ways you don't get back to them, you know, like, so at a certain point you shouldn't go back and say, Hey, I didn't understand what you said there. You know, it's just like, right. and that, and that, you know, feeds directly into, you know, technical development. And you can do that right up front without kind of, uh, you know, doing the build. And it's the same, I think, with, you know, any, any kind of product design, uh, you know, yeah, connected yeah. product. I don't know how, you know, I don't know how they prototype the uh, Echo, maybe somebody hiding behind the curtain. Uh, always sure, sure. Like an actual person, I yeah, mean, you yeah. could just do it with a with a speakerphone and um, and and try to try to gauge what the expectations would be. Yeah, no, I, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, although I would I would say in a hardware design has had the cost of entry has reduced pretty dramatically, at least at the prototyping stage, with things like Arduino and Raspberry Pi and stuff like that. I mean, I know on the on the software side, like one of the first products I made, we had to buy 
$15,000 worth of servers to do a beta test. Literally, like the, the guy in the UPS truck showed up with big boxes of servers that we had to go take to a data center and plug them in. And, um, and now, of course, you would do that. I mean, you could do that for free on Amazon Web Services uh, yeah. with, a, with a, a new account. You know, they'll let you like, ah, go for a year and then we'll start charging you at some point. Like, so that you know, cost has gone away and r dramatically reduced risk and the ability to prototype and explore new ideas. I think that's happening to some degree in hardware, although you still have to get the hardware to the person. Right. You still have to get it to the person and you still have to go through the consumer at least this kind of mass production process, which has got this kind of friction involved. Yeah. And the difficulty with prototyping is it doesn't translate exactly to uh, manufacturing. You know, you might get stuck in a bill of materials right. problem. Right. And I think one of the incredible things that happened with software um, was that the, the, the desktop machines we used every day became equivalent to the server infrastructure. So, you know, the idea that I could pop right. open a terminal yep. on my machine and it's the same as the thing which gets, gets shipped just means there's no gap between, or a much smaller gap between, you know, development and, uh, and, and shipped, which we're not quite there with right. connected devices right. yet. So, you know, because there are factors like, you know, if, uh, if it turns out your product's going to be more expensive, that changes the way people relate to it because it means they only have, um, well, you know, they, they expect it aesthetically to be greater, but also they kind of look at it as if it's more, uh, more singular. Um, so you only have, you know, one of the things in your house. I was going to say there is another way around this, which is you dodge manufacturing entirely um, or you dodge batch production entirely. Uh, so what you can do instead is you can make your product out of um, commodity parts and you bring it to life with the service. So the service becomes the thing which is different. Mm. And that's... Do you have an example of that? Yeah, there's a few different ones. I think um, Dropcam were doing it very effectively. Uh, it, you know, they were... The, the camera itself was a, you know, a pretty you know, basic device differentiated by, by the service behind it. Um, I think one of the things which is, uh, you know, an, another company I've been working with, part of the program called Hoxton Analytics, they have a, uh, a camera to monitor um, footfall of people outside shops, and they do it by plugging in an AI that can recognize people's shoes. But the cameras are completely yeah. commodity, right? So they're able to, you know, that their point of differentiation, that their, their, the thing they're designing and iterating is really the dashboards, you know, the intelligence that comes out of it, which is purely software. So they've turned what was a hardware problem into a software problem. But I'll tell you my favorite is back to uh, Winnow, this food waste company. Right. Um, so they had a situation where they had a integrated product. You know, to be in the kitchen, it's got to be pretty robust. So you need, you know, your tablet can't just be any tablet. It's got to be, you know, made more, made more solid. It's got to be on a on a mount which includes the uh, the backhaul, the connectivity to the network, you know, some kind of reliability, power uh, that connects to kind of a scale. Uh, the scale as well has to be kind of, you know, on brand and nicely formed and kind of fit underneath any bin. And all of that is is a is a product. And that, of course, has all the usual product problems of, um, you know, it's very hard to iterate as you go, all those kind of things. And what they decided to do instead, they took an interesting route which is they decided to make it out of almost commodity parts that could be produced independently or almost off the shelf. And they could upgrade them uh, separately. 
So the scale connects, um, I think, I, I forget whether it's uh, over USB or Bluetooth, but each installation they do, the scale could be updated. They just buy it from a different company, you know, ask them to, mm. ask them to put the Bluetooth in it, but that's separate from the tablet and the tablet as well. You know, they buy, they buy tablets, they order them, but they're put inside a, a particular kind of case. But as the tablet changes a little bit, as long as they don't, you know, change that tablet manufacturer, you know, the changes don't happen too too frequently or too much. Um, it can be upgraded and changed slightly independently of the scale itself. Ditto the back call, ditto the power supply. The challenge they faced was how do you make that look like a single product? How do you make it kind of look, you know, unitary? And right, the right. the answer is um, to look at other situations where we have things made out of commodity parts that link together. Uh, I remember talking about uh, talking with them about this a couple of years ago. And the reference point was, you know, when you go and see a gig and they put together all the all the equipment on stage, you know, the speakers and the and the and the, the pedals uh, and the microphones, they all seem unitary, but they're all made out of different parts. The answer is beautiful cabling. God, I'm all about the cabling today, aren't I? Um, yeah. So it turns out, yeah, cabling must be on my mind somewhere. There are. Uh, what Winnow have is just really good cables. And that's the, that means they can upgrade all the different bits independently. They don't get trapped into a situation where they're having to manage uh, stock and supply chain so much. They can buy pieces separately, upgrade them separately, um, and learn as they encounter more kitchens and more users, they can change their kit without having to redesign the entire manufacturing process as well. And I think that's a, yeah, it's a really smart thing to do. And I think, you know, we've yet to bottom out the imaginative approaches because I think we don't understand yet as, you know, as businesses and as designers, we don't fully understand yet the constraints and possibilities of supply chain. Um, there aren't that many people around who are being able to see it, not just as a constraint, but as an opportunity to do it a bit differently. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. I wonder, now, I wonder how that applies in the consumer world where the products that we're buying are going to be fixtures in our homes, right? You talked a little bit about higher expectations from consumers uh, when it comes to buying hardware. And I think that's happened over the last few years that technology can't look like technology anymore. It has to look like artifacts and objects, right? Mm -hmm. That kind of bring you joy in, when they sit out in your home. Do you think that's affecting the uh, startup or, or even bigger scale design in hardware? Yeah, I think there's a, a, a challenge we've got is that the aesthetics we're, well, on the one hand, the aesthetics we're used to are only really possible when you have, you know, manufacturing in the millions, tens of millions. You know, we're so used to kind of CNC aluminium yeah. because of Apple. But I remember hearing that, you know, when they bought their, when they bought their CNC uh, machines for that, they, they doubled the world's manufacturing capability for that process. <laughs> so this is, you know, this is not accessible to anyone else. And it provides a kind of a, it's a it's a barrier. It would be an interesting exercise to go. What would be, you know, what would be an aesthetic which was true to things which were short run manufacture, and could we popularize it? Uh, because we have that for you know ones and tens, right? You know, knitted things, you know, home knitted, um, or wood is really good. But there's nothing which is kind of you know true to the aesthetic of you know a thousand of, and you know maybe there's something in three D printing. Um, so you're talking about the internet of artisanal things? <laughs> <laughs> you know, why not? Yeah. Why not? 
um, I think, yeah, there's maybe there's maybe something in that. Um, I wonder what that would be like. The other the other thing is is the expectation around price, and that just is a a hugely distorting problem. You want something that looks and feels of high quality, that ostensibly would be expensive, but you don't want to pay more than you know sixty nine pounds mm. or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Who's who else is doing a really good job? What are you looking at that you that you find really interesting around the design of this stuff? No, uh, this is a larger company thing, but I've been playing with the Snapchat spectacles recently. I don't know whether you got your hands on the pair yet. I have not. Uh, they are super fun. I think I'm outside of the uh, appropriate age range. Here. I'm not allowed to have them. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's um, it's yeah. I'm also well out the appropriate age range, but you know, in the spirit of uh, research, you know, I think you yeah, can. I think go. you can justify it. Uh, I wore them to. I wore them to the cricket over the weekend. Um, which was a peculiar experience, um, you know, kind of recording a couple of catches using these things. You're not allowed to take recording devices into a sports stadium, right? So, like, um, does anybody <laughs> does anybody recognize what they are? Um, so there's this very weird thing that to anyone who's not in, you know, Snapchat sphere, um, they just look like quirky sunglasses with, you know, little yellow rings on. But every so often I encounter someone in their 20s and they're just staring at me because they know exactly what they are. Uh, and they're super intrigued. Uh, but they have they have some really you know it's a really interesting interesting device you know they um they're, they're sunglasses which impose a situation of use on the wearer because they're dark um that means you have to wear them outside um because they're quirky it means you only wear them in situations of fun so you you know they would be impossible to wear in an office meeting they kind of are accepted because they've kind of pushed themselves into particular context of use there's some nice quirks as well like you know the glasses charge themselves when they're inside the case the case looks waterproof i don't know whether it is but that's kind of another indication about how to how they want to be used and you can kind of charge the case and the glasses independently you know and also they have this kind of slightly rubberized finish the plastic is slightly speckled which makes me think that they're they're beginning to look at this kind of non you know millions of units aesthetic. You know they're beginning to they're beginning to find a place which is a, a bit more playful, a bit more short run. You know I wouldn't expect it if they look completely different tomorrow. So I find I find those things quite interesting. They've got they've got quite a lot of touches in them which are about the actual experience of wearing them, like everything down from the fact that they've got a little attract mode to make you know to to make people realise that you're recording. But the, the, the light that comes on to tell people you're recording also has this spinning feature, which just attracts the viewer to look at it. Uh, but it's not in the same place as the camera. So it means that when people look at you, they're not looking straight down the, uh, straight down the lens. And it makes the recording look much more, you know, much better. So they've obviously they had a thought yeah. about it a lot. I mean, it's, there's some very deft touches in there. Well, here's the, I mean, that, there it is in a nutshell, right? If you look at the difference between the Snapchat spectacles and Google Glass, which, uh, you know, different use cases, and I get that. But if you back up and look at the design process, a human-centered design process that, that identified, uncovered, and uh, responded to social norms. Mm. And I think that's, God, that's right there is the difference between the kind of engineering-driven design process at Google and what Snapchat has been doing. And uh, I think is a, is a great sort of just the example of what we're trying to get here around how you design from the, that user-centered point of view, whether it's software or hardware. Yeah, 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 And I think it's interesting because there are people who have done that kind of engineering, kind of put it out there in the world and see what happens um, very effectively, which is, you know, Amazon with the uh, voice assistant that cannot be named. Otherwise, it's going to wake up, wake up yours <laughs> and everyone else's. Yep. You know, that that's a 
classic example of something where the interactions feel very undesigned, but they've created this kind of uh, surface, this layer of experimentation that the crowd of the most engaged users, you know, users slash creators can figure out what works best. And then, you know, you can kind of see Amazon learning from that and incorporating the best lessons back into the API, working with developers. It's a very different, yeah. it's a very different design process uh, from what Snapchat did. And both work really well. I think that's what's, that's what's quite interesting. Something, I wonder about that. Well, first of all, it's, you're talking about a company that can try a $10 million experiment and that's just a little rounding error to their billions of revenue. So you kind of have to qualify it around that. But I, I wonder about things like the... Uh, hit to the brand, the Fire Phone, for example, which was an unmitigated failure, like just across the board. Does that have any long-term damage, like experimenting in public like that? I, I don't know the answer to that, but but I think that there is something to that. Yeah, someone like Amazon, they are known for experimenting and being unafraid of that kind of failure. So I think it kind of makes you slightly embrace that and the brand a bit more. The fact it might not work, you know, that that's quite exciting to uh, yeah. to try something which might yeah. be quite broken, it doesn't offend you. Someone like Snapchat, I was fully expecting the spectacles to be a marketing exercise and not well-rounded at all. So I was expecting these things to be just about getting attention. You know, they you get them from a vending machine that was kind of lowered onto the South Bank with a big chain or something, you know. I actually bought from the website and the purchase experience is just as glorious as the glasses, by the way. Uh, yeah. You know, the, the, it's end-to-end. -end. But I was fully expecting it to be a marketing-only thing, that it would all be about the attention and the things in use would not be well-considered. But they are. So I was happily very surprised about that. This has been a great conversation. Uh, absolutely. Where can we uh, where can find out more about what you're doing? You've got a blog, an old-timey blog, actually, <laughs> don't you? Right? Interconnected.org. Send people over there. You yeah. do some writing over there. Interconnected.org gets updated periodically when, when it's not broken. Twitter is the... <laughs> you, run, you run your own software even? It's not like running on WordPress or something? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm old school. It gets rewritten. Love that. It gets rewritten periodically, I think. Most, um, I've, been, I've been on the web for long enough that uh, most platforms and most languages have come and gone in the time frame of, of me keeping it. So the only thing I believe in now is you know, keeping, my, keeping my own data uh, and making sure that I can rewrite the system sort of in a weekend. Yeah. Um, I'm yep, not particularly yep. good at any of this, but yeah. So, so interconnect.org is, is a, is a good place to find me and on Twitter as Genmon. Um, oh, I'm so, so glad to hear you pronounce that. Cause I, it's a little bit like GIF versus GIF. I never knew what, uh, what your Twitter handle was. So Genmon. All right. Got it. G-E-N-M-O-N. We'll send people over there too. Matt, thanks so much. This was a fantastic conversation. Thank you for having me. And that's another episode of Presentable. Hey, got any questions? You can email us at hello at presentable.fm or get in touch via Twitter by following Presentable FM. We hope you've really enjoyed the show. And if you do, could you take a moment and give us a rating on iTunes? It really helps and we'd really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jeffrey Veen, and this was Presentable.